Volume One, Chapter Eleven of The Mummy: A Tale of the Twenty Second Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mummy: A Tale of the Twenty Second Century, by Jane Loudon, Volume One, Chapter Eleven. In the meantime, Sir Ambrose Montague had attended the Duke to the Queen's drawing-room. The splendour of the English court at this period defies description. The walls of the room in which the Queen received her guests were literally one maze of precious stones, and these being disposed in the form of bouquets, wreaths and trophies were so contrived as to quiver with every movement these magnificent walls were relieved by a colonnade of pillars of solid gold around which were twined wreaths of jewels fixed also upon elastic gold wires so as to tremble every instant the throne of the queen was formed of gold filigree beautifully wrought richly chased and superbly ornamented whilst behind it was an immense plate of looking-glass stretching the whole length and height of the apartment and giving the whole effect of a fairy palace the carpet spread upon the floor of this sumptuous saloon was so exact an imitation of green moss with exquisitely beautiful groups of flowers thrown carelessly upon it that a heedless spectator might have been completely deceived by the delicacy of their shape and richness of their colouring and have stooped to pick them up supposing them to be real the suite of rooms appropriated to dancing was equally splendid and fitted up in the same manner save that the floors were painted to imitate the effect of the carpet and rows of trees were placed on each side hung with lamps this imitative grove was so exquisitely managed that the spectator could scarcely believe it artificial and the music for dancing proceeded from its leaves or from automaton birds placed carelessly amongst its branches the dresses of the queen and her attendants were worthy of the apartment they occupied brocaded silks cloth of gold embroidered velvets gold and silver tissues and gossamer nets made of the spider's web were mingled with precious stones and superb plumes of feathers in a profusion quite beyond description the most beautiful of the female habiliments were robes made of woven asbestos which glittered in the brilliant light like molten silver the ladies were all arrayed in loose trousers over which hung drapery in graceful folds and most of them carried on their heads streams of lighted gas forced by capillary tubes into plumes fleur-de-lis or in short any form the wearer pleased which jets de feu had an uncommonly chaste and elegant effect the gentlemen were all clothed in the spanish style with slashed sleeves short cloaks and large hats ornamented with immense plumes of ostrich feathers it being considered in those days extremely vulgar to appear with a head uncovered 
it would be difficult perhaps to imagine more perfect models of male and female beauty than those which now adorn the court of queen claudia for the beau ideal of the painter's fancy seemed realized nay surpassed by the noble living figures there collected the women were particularly lovely and as they stood gathered round their queen or lightly threaded the mazes of the graceful dance dressed as above described their brows bound with circlets of precious stones and their glossy hair hanging in rich luxuriant ringlets upon their ivory shoulders they looked like a group of auries or the nymphs of circe ready with sparkling eyes and witching voices to lure men to destruction claudia was very handsome and though her countenance wanted expression her noble figure and majestic bearing well qualified her to play her part as queen amongst this bevy of beauties with becoming dignity there is something in the habit of command when it has been long enjoyed that gives an imposing majesty to the manner which the parvenu great strive in vain to imitate and claudia had this in perfection the consciousness of beauty power and high birth swelled in her bosom and even when she wished to be affable she was only condescending she now however received sir ambrose most graciously she gave him her snowy hand to kiss and addressed a few words of compliment to him which sank deep into his heart it is one of the privileges of greatness easily to excite emotion one word of commendation from those above us far outweighs all the laboured flattery of our inferiors thus the words of claudia and the warm praise she bestowed on edmund gave the purest transport to his father's heart and affected him so violently that he would have fallen at her feet had he not been supported by father morris who stood near him i leave you in excellent hands sir ambrose said claudia smiling i have known father morris from my cradle and estimate him as one of my dearest and best friends so saying the queen passed on whilst father morris with pallid lips and quivering limbs conducted the baronet to a sofa under the shade of the harmonious trees before mentioned the agitation of the priest was so marked and so unusual that notwithstanding sir ambrose's indisposition he could not avoid noticing it good heavens what is the matter with you father morris exclaimed the baronet i-i-i believe that i am ill stammered the priest hastening to fetch a glass of water by the time he returned all traces of agitation had vanished from his countenance and the mind of sir ambrose was too much occupied with the thought of edmund to suffer him to dwell long upon the circumstance the following day was appointed for the triumphal entry of lord edmund and the greatest part of the night preceding it was passed by sir ambrose in the greatest agitation he could not sleep and he rose several times from his bed in excessive anxiety to listen for the reception of noises which he fancied he heard once he opened his window all was still 
his room looked into the garden of the palace which as we have already mentioned shelved down to the thames and the calm moonlight slept peacefully upon the tall thick trees and verdant lawn that spread before him the evening breeze felt cool and refreshing but sir ambrose sighed and a strange fear of something he could not wholly define hung over him he again retired to bed and at length sank into a feverish and uneasy doze at daybreak a thundering cannon announced the arrival of the important day sir ambrose started from his pillow at the first discharge and the solemn sound thrilled through every nerve as it pealed along the sky scarcely had its echoes died upon the ear when another and another peal succeeded and the heart of sir ambrose throbbed in his bosom almost to suffocation as he sate resting his head upon his hands and striving though ineffectually to stop his ears from the solemn sound which seemed to absorb his every faculty and strike almost with the force of a blow upon his nerves whilst he was still in this position father morris entered the room come come sir ambrose cried he are you not ready the queen has sent for us and the procession is just ready to set off sir ambrose started he attempted to dress himself but his trembling hands refused to perform their office and father morris and abelard were obliged to attire him and lead him down to join his friend the duke who was waiting for him impatiently it has often been said that the anticipation of pleasure is always greater than the reality this however was not the case in the present instance as the brilliancy of lord edmund's triumph was far greater than even the imaginations of the spectators had before dared to conceive the duke and sir ambrose attended by father morris found the individuals who were to compose the procession of the queen assembled in the extensive gardens belonging to the superb palace of somerset house these fine gardens spreading their verdant groves along the banks of the river adorned by all the charms of nature and art and enriched by some of the finest specimens of sculpture in the world were now crowded with all the beauty and rank of england who waiting for the arrival of their sovereign formed an ensemble no other nation in the world could hope to imitate in the centre walk appeared the superb arabian charger of the queen led by his grooms and magnificently caparisoned his bridle was studded with precious stones and his hoofs cased in gold whilst his blue satin saddle and housings were richly embroidered and fringed with the same metal the noble animal whose flowing mane and tail swept the ground paced proudly along tossing his head on high and spurning the ground on which he trod as though conscious he should perform a conspicuous part in the grand pageant about to take place all now was ready but yet queen claudia did not appear it is very strange but lately it is always so said lord maysworth to lord gustavus de montfort who had been for some time engaged in earnest conversation with father morris lord gustavus started at the sound of his friend's voice in some apparent confusion 
whilst father morris replied in his usual soft insinuating tones perhaps her majesty may be indisposed and may have slept rather longer than usual most likely returned lord maysworth yet it is strange the same thing should happen so often if you remember continued he again addressing lord gustavus i made the same observation the morning of her last levy indeed i have frequently made it lately and i have observed that she looks pale and languid here she comes at any rate and for my part i think i never saw her look better said dr hardman who had now joined them and who notwithstanding his violent politics was one of the physicians of the court the indolence of claudia which indeed seemed daily increasing having induced her to overlook what another sovereign would have resented claudia did indeed look well and her dress suited well with her style of beauty her trousers and vest were of a pale blue satin whilst over her shoulders was thrown a long flowing drapery of asbestos silk which hanging in graceful folds swept the ground as she walked along shining in the sun like a robe of woven silver on her head she wore a splendid tiara of diamonds and in her hand she bore the regal sceptre surmounted by a dove and richly ornamented with precious stones thus gorgeously attired surrounded by the ladies of her household she issued from her palace and whilst her kneeling subjects bent in humble homage around her she mounted her noble charger cannon were now fired in rapid succession the bells of every church rang in merry peals and martial music mingled in the clamour the palace gates were thrown open and the procession poured from them along the streets where crowds of people bustled to and fro eager to catch a glimpse of the sumptuous spectacle first advanced a long double line of monks arrayed in sacerdotal pomp and bearing immensely thick lighted tapers in their hands chanting thanksgiving for the victory they were followed by chorister boys flinging incense from silver vases that hung suspended by chains in their hands and chanting also their shrill trebles mingling with the deep bass voices of the priests in rich and mellow harmony the queen next appeared her prancing charger led by grooms whilst beautiful girls elegantly attired walked on each side of their sovereign scattering flowers in her path from fancy baskets made of wrought gold behind the queen rode the ladies of her household and the principal nobles of her court the superb plumes of ostrich feathers in the large spanish hats of the latter with their immense mustachios and open shirt collars giving them the air of some of van dyck's best pictures as they rode slowly along their noble arabians paced proudly and champed the bit impatient of restraint the ladies of the court superbly dressed in open litters next appeared borne upon the shoulders of men splendidly clad in rich liveries amongst these were elvira and rosabella 
These were followed by monks and boys as before, but singing a somewhat different strain. It was now a chant of glory and triumph that swelled upon the ear, for these preceded the Duke and Sir Ambrose, who, the one as uncle to the Queen, and the other as father of the expected hero, occupied the post of honour. The two venerable old men sate hand in hand, in a sumptuous car drawn by two Arabian horses, and were followed by a large body of the Queen's guards. The costliness and variety of the dresses worn this day were quite beyond description. Many of the ladies had turbans of woven glass, whilst others carried on their hats very pretty fountains made of glass dust, which, being thrown up in little jets by a small perpetual motion wheel, sparkled in the sun like real water, and had a very singular effect. In this manner the procession advanced towards Blackheath Square, said to be the largest and finest in the world, where the meeting between the Queen and her general was appointed to take place. Amongst the numerous balloons that floated in the air enjoying this magnificent spectacle was one containing Father Murphy, Clara, Mrs. Russell, and Abelard, Clara's youth preventing her joining in the procession, and nothing could be more enthusiastic than their delight as they looked down upon the splendid scene below them. Few things, indeed, could be imagined finer than the sight of this gorgeous cortege winding slowly along a magnificent street supposed to be five miles long, leading from Blackfriars Bridge through Greenwich to Blackheath sumptuous rows of houses or rather palaces lined the sides of this superb street the terraces and balconies before which were crowded with persons of all ages beautifully attired waving flags of different colours richly embroidered and fringed with gold whilst festoons of the choicest flowers hung from house to house we have already said the air was thronged with balloons, and the crowd increased every moment. These aerial machines, loaded with spectators till they were in danger of breaking down, glittered in the sun, and presented every possible variety of shape and color. In fact, every balloon in London or the vicinity had been put in requisition, and enormous sums paid, in some cases merely for the privilege of hanging to the cords which attached the cars, whilst the innumerable multitudes that thus loaded the air amused themselves by scattering flowers upon the heads of those who rode beneath. Besides balloons, a variety of other modes of conveyance fluttered in the sky. Some dandies bestrode aerial horses, inflated with inflammable gas, whilst others floated upon wings or glided gently along, reclining gracefully upon aerial sledges, the last being contrived so as to cover a sufficient column of air for their support. As the procession approached the river, the scene became still more animated. Innumerable barges of every kind and description shot swiftly along or glided smoothly over the sparkling water. 
some floated with the tide in large boat-like shoes whilst others reclining on couch-shaped cars formed of mother-of-pearl were drawn forward by inflated figures representing the deities or monsters of the deep when the queen reached a spot near greenwich where through a spacious opening the river in all its glorious majesty burst upon her she paused and commanded her trumpeters to advance and sound a flourish they obeyed and after a short pause were answered by those of lord edmund the sound mellowed by the distance pealing along the water in dulcet harmony delighted with this response which announced the arrival of lord edmund and his troops at the appointed place the procession of the queen was again set in motion and in a short time arrived at blackheath the noble square in which the meeting was to take place was already thronged with soldiers whilst every house that surrounded it was covered with spectators no trees or fantastical ornaments spoiled the simple grandeur of this immense space the houses that surrounded it built in exact uniformity each having a peristyle supported by corinthian pillars and a highly decorated facade looked like so many athenian temples as the cortege of the queen entered the square the soldiers formed an opening to receive it and reverentially knelt on each side with reversed arms and bending banners as she passed in the centre was lord edmund surrounded by his staff all in polished armour for since an invention had been discovered of rendering steel perfectly flexible it had been generally used in war lord edmund's helmet was thrown off and his fine countenance was displayed to the greatest advantage as he and his officers threw themselves from their war steeds to kneel before the queen claudia also descended from her charger and as she stood in her glittering robes surrounded on all sides by her kneeling subjects she looked indeed their sovereign with becoming dignity she addressed a few words of thanks and commendation to lord edmund whose graceful figure was shown to the utmost advantage as he knelt before her his thick dark brown hair falling in clustering curls over his noble forehead and his elegant form attired in a suit of closely fitting armour over which upon the present occasion was thrown a short cloak of fine scarlet cloth richly embroidered with gold and fastened in front by a cord and superb tassels made entirely of the same metal in short he looked like a living personification of the god of war the queen raised him from the ground in the most gracious manner and then turning to the still kneeling soldiers she made a short speech to them of the same nature as that which she had addressed to lord edmund after which again mounting her palfrey she made lord edmund ride by her side and prepared to return to town edmund's quick eye had discovered and exchanged looks of affection with his father and friends though the etiquette of his present situation did not permit him to do more 
and now he rode proudly by the side of the queen, gracefully bowing to the assembled crowd as he passed, his heart beating with pleasure at the thought that his triumph was witnessed by those most dear to him, whilst his noble Arabian prancing forward tossed his head and champed his bit as though he also knew the part he was performing in the splendid ceremony. Acclamations rent the sky as the procession advanced, and the showers of roses were rained down upon the queen and her general from the balloons above, from which also flags waved in graceful folds, and flapped in the wind as the balloons floated along the sky. Every one seemed delighted with the grandeur of this splendid pageant, but no one experienced more pleasure than Clara Montague and her companions, the raptures of Mrs. Russell being so excessive that, like the spectators of the stag-hunt on the Lake of Killarney, she was in imminent danger of throwing herself overboard in ecstasy, whilst Clara clasped her hands together in all the transports of childish delight, her sparkling eyes and animated looks bearing ample witness to her gratification. "'What shouting! What a noise!' exclaimed Abelard. "'I declare it puts me in the mind of the acclamations in the time of Nero, when the Romans shouted in concert, and birds fell from the skies with the noise.' "'How well the Queen looks!' observed Mrs. Russell. "'It was said a short time since that she had lost her appetite and could get no rest, "'but I think she doesn't seem to have much the matter with her now.' "'Evelina says she's being poisoned,' cried Clara, "'and that the people say that it would be no great matter if she was, "'for then they would have to choose a Queen for themselves, "'and then they might make what terms they pleased with her.' An awkward pause followed this speech, which no one seemed inclined to break, till Clara exclaimed, "'Dear me! What a pretty horse my cousin Edmund rides!' "'I think that's a prettier comes after him,' said Father Murphy. "'What, that one with his head hanging down and his mane sweeping the ground?' asked Mrs. Russell. "'Yes, and sure it's a very pretty young man that walks by the side of him, so he is.' replied father murphy his hands are chained so you see he is a prisoner observed abelard sure and it's a barbarous custom that of putting chains about the hands of the prisoners said father murphy as if it was not bad enough to be a prisoner without looking like one poor fellow cried clara i should like to go and let him loose he looks very melancholy how great lord edmund looks exclaimed mrs russell I declare, if he were a real king, he couldn't have a grander appearance. And then to see the poor old gentleman, his father, sitting there hand in hand with my master, I declare it does my heart good to look at them. Whilst the occupiers of the balloons were thus enjoying the splendid scene below them, the pleasure of the exalted personages they admired had not been inferior to their own. The duke, in particular, seemed almost out of his senses with joy. His impatience during the whole procession from London had been excessive, and the moment he saw Edmund, he rubbed his hands in ecstasy, and jumping up in his seat, almost overturned Sir Ambrose, who was also bending forward, eagerly gazing upon his son. 
there there he is cried the duke see how handsome he looks oh the young rogue there'll be many a heart lost to-day i warrant me look at him how the colour comes into his cheeks when the queen speaks to him now he helps her on her horse and now see he's looking round for us there i caught his eye look sir ambrose don't you see him surely you aren't crying my old friend why you'll make me as great a fool as yourself god bless him i am sure i don't know anything we have to cry at but we are two old simpletons father morris who had joined the procession of monks was almost as much affected as his patron indeed his affection for edmund seemed the only human passion remaining in his aesthetic breast cold even to frigidity in his exterior father morris seemed to regard the scenes passing around him but as the moving figures of a magic lantern which glittered for a moment in glowing colours and then vanished into darkness leaving no trace behind whilst he unmoved as the wall over which the gaudy but shadowy pageant had passed saw them alternately vanish and reappear without the slightest emotion being excited in his mind under this statue-like appearance however father morris concealed passions as terrific as those which might be supposed to throb in the breast of a demon though never did his self-command seem relaxed for a moment but when the interests of edmund were in question on the present occasion joy swelled in his bosom almost to suffocation as he raised his eyes to heaven and wringing his hands together exclaimed oh it is too too much there is something indescribably affecting in seeing strong emotion expressed by those who are generally calm and unimpassioned thus sir ambrose by whom this burst of feeling was quite unexpected gazed at the confessor with the utmost surprise and strange to tell though he had known him nearly twenty years it was the first time he had seen his head completely uncovered father morris's cowl had now fallen off entirely and displayed the head of a man between forty and fifty whose fine features bore the traces of what he had endured his noble expressive brow seemed wrinkled more by care than age and his sable locks had evidently become grizzled here and there prematurely sir ambrose gazed upon him intently for the peculiar expression of his features seemed to recall some half-forgotten circumstance to his mind dimly obscured however by the mist of time the earnestness with which he regarded the monk seemed at length to remind the latter of his imprudence he started and whilst a deep crimson flushed his usual sallow countenance he had he started and whilst a deep crimson flushed his usually sw he started and whilst a deep crimson flushed his usually sallow countenance he hastily resumed his cowl and appeared again to the eyes of the spectators the same cold unimpassioned abstracted being as before 
The ovation had now nearly reached Blackfriars Bridge, at the entrance to which a triumphal arch had been erected. The moment the Queen and her heroic general passed under it, a small figure of fame was contrived to descend from the entablature, and hovering over the hero to drop a laurel crown upon his head. Shouts of applause followed this well-executed device, and the passengers in the balloons, wondering at the noise, all pressed forward at this same moment to ascertain the cause of such continued acclamations. The throng of balloons became thus every instant more dense, whilst some young city apprentices, having hired each a pair of wings for the day, and not exactly knowing how to manage them, a dreadful tumult ensued, and the balloons became entangled with the winged heroes and each other in an inextricable confusion. The noise now became tremendous, the conductors of the balloons swearing at each other the most refined oaths, and the ladies screaming in concert. Several balloons were rent in the scuffle, and fell with tremendous force upon the earth, whilst some cars were torn from their supporting ropes, and others roughly overset. Luckily, however, the whole of England was at this time so completely excavated, that falling upon the surface of the earth was like tumbling upon the parchment of an immense drum, and consequently only a deep hollow sound was returned as cargo after cargo of the demolished balloons struck upon it, though some of them rebounded several yards with the violence of the shock. Amongst those who fell from the greatest height, and of course rebounded most violently, were the unfortunate individuals who accompanied Clara, an unlucky apprentice having poked his right wing through the silk of their balloon, in endeavouring to avoid the charge of an aerial horseman, who found his Aeolian steed too difficult to manage in the confusion. The car containing our friends was in consequence precipitated to earth so rapidly as for the moment to deprive them of breath. "'Sure, and I'm killed entirely,' cried Father Murphy. "'Oh, my bonnet! My beautiful bonnet!' sobbed Mrs. Russell, whilst Clara, dreadfully frightened, began to cry. And Abelard, whose ideas were generally a long time travelling to his brain, particularly upon occasions of sudden alarm, stood completely silent, stupidly gazing about him, as though he had not the least notion what could have possibly happened. Indeed, it was not till a full hour afterwards that he found himself sufficiently recovered to exclaim, "'Dear me! I do think we were very near being killed!' The confusion in the air still continued, piercing screams that demons were amongst them, mingled horribly with the crashing of balloons, the cries of the sufferers, and the successive falling of heavy weights. The situation of the crowd below, however, was infinitely worse than that of those above. The momentum of the falling bodies being fearfully increased by the distance they had to descend, those beneath had no chance of escape and were inevitably crushed to death by the weight, whilst the agonizing shrieks of the unfortunate wretches who saw their danger coming from a distance, yet were so jammed together in the crowd that they could not fly, rang shrilly upon the ear, 
and pierced through every heart. At this moment a dreadful scream ran through the crowd, and the horse of Queen Claudia, his bridle broken, his housings torn, his nostrils distended, and his sides streaming with gore, rushed past. O oh God! The Queen! The Queen! burst from every voice, and one general rush took place towards the spot from whence the cry had proceeded. Beneath the triumphal arch, and partially sheltered by its shade, lay the bleeding body of Claudia, supported by Edmund. By her side knelt Rosabella, who, assisted by Father Morris, was applying restoratives, whilst Henry Seymour was endeavouring to restore Elvira, who had fainted in his arms, and Sir Ambrose, his face streaming with blood, stood at a little distance amongst a group of courtiers, several of whom had also experienced severe injuries. The tumult in the air continued, groans and shrieks and exclamations that the atmosphere was supernaturally haunted were heard in many places, and some persons declared the accident to be the work of demons. A current of wind had blown those balloons that had become unmanageable across the city, while the others, their occupiers, terrified almost to madness, appeared still contending with some fearful monster in the sky. The courtiers, however, heeded not this disturbance, for all their attention was occupied by the apparently expiring queen, whose long-drawn sighs and convulsed bosom seemed to threaten her instant dissolution. "'She's gone!' cried Lord Gustavus de Montfort, as her bosom heaved with a deep, heavy sigh, and then all was still. "'Yes, she's dead,' repeated Lord Noodle. "'She is certainly dead,' reiterated Lord Doodle. And then these sapient counsellors of the apparently departed queen shook their wise heads in sympathy. "'Hush! She breathes!' cried Lord Edmund. For some moments the courtiers stood in breathless anxiety watching the body, and fearing to move, lest they should break the awful silence that prevailed, though their hearts throbbed till the pulsations were almost audible. Fearful was the pause that now ensued. All were suffering from the torments of hope or fear, for all knew that the interests of the whole community hung upon her breath. Most of the courtiers either hoped to gain places or feared to lose them, whilst all trembled at the uncertainty that seemed to rest upon their future destiny, and the prospect of the anarchy which the proposed mode of electing their future sovereign might create. The interest which the fate of the queen excited was thus intense, and the courtiers hung over her body with streaming eyes and motionless limbs to watch the result. At this instant a fearful and tremendous yell ran through the air, and the car containing the mummy, which had been for some time entangled with the other balloons, fell to the ground with tremendous force, close to the expiring queen. The gigantic figure of Cheops started from it as it fell, 
his ghastly eyes glaring with unnatural lustre upon the terrified courtiers who ran screaming with agony in all directions forgetting everything but the horrid vision before them end of volume one chapter eleven